Luke chapter 23, verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then he returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day they rested according to the commandment. Chapter 24. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home, marveling at what had happened. Thank you, Marcia. Well, this morning we continue our study in the Gospel of Luke, and as we do, we come to the single most important event in all of human history the resurrection of Jesus. John Stott, an an old English pastor, he once wrote, Christianity in its very essence is a resurrection religion. The concept of resurrection lies at its heart. If you remove it, Christianity is completely destroyed. Tim Keller in his book, The Reason for God, he wrote, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Both those men are so true that Christianity either stands or falls on this whole idea of the resurrection. That if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then, then everything we believe in this room is a complete sham. It's a lie. We're believing in a make-believe story. But if Jesus has been resurrected, then the reality of that then completely changes everything. That it opens a door to a treasure chest that is full of realities that seem too good to be true. And that's what we're going to see within our passage here this morning. But before we look at this, it's very important that we remember Like why Luke wrote this gospel account of Jesus' life to begin with. 
If you remember, all the way back in chapter 1, specifically in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, Luke tells us the purpose for why he wrote this particular gospel account of Jesus' life. And if you remember there, he tells us that he wrote this account specifically for one man by the name of Theophilus. And the reason that he went through all this trouble to, to interview eyewitnesses, to read previous accounts of Jesus' life and, and birth and, and ministry and, and death and resurrection and, resurrection and then compile it into this, this account that, that he wrote for this one man by the name of Theophilus. The reason that he went through all this trouble to do that is so that Theophilus, he tells us in chapter 1 verse 4, would know for certain that everything that he's been taught about Jesus is true, that, that he wants Theophilus to, to, to be sure that everything Theophilus has heard, that everything Theophilus has been taught regarding the birth and the life and the ministry and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, Luke writes this account. He goes and does all these interviews and he, he looks at, reads all these other previous accounts that has been written and he, he compiles it in this account for Theophilus so Theophilus would be convinced so that he wouldn't have, a, have an ounce of doubt in his mind that all the things that he's been taught regarding who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, Luke went and investigated all that and compiled this account for Theophilus so he would know beyond a shadow of a doubt and know for certain that everything that he's been taught about Jesus is 100% completely accurate and true. And that's the effect that this gospel should have on our lives as well. That Luke wrote this, not just for Theophilus, but he wrote it for everyone who would read this after Theophilus. To convince us and show us that everything that he's written here and everything that we have heard about Jesus and all the teachings that we have heard about Jesus, that we would be certain that they're all, that they're all true. And that includes the resurrection that Luke writes this, that the reason that Luke includes this account of Jesus' resurrection, the reason that Luke includes all these specific details about Jesus' resurrection, that he includes all of these details, all of this information about Jesus' resurrection for the purpose of making sure that Theophilus and making sure that we would know for certain that all of these things actually really happened and that Jesus actually really rose from the dead. That Luke's purpose and his intent is for Theophilus and for the reader, us, to read this and to leave with more certainty and more assurance and more confidence in our mind that Jesus really did, in fact, rise from the dead. And if we really believe that, then the reality of that has huge implications and huge ramifications on our lives here this morning. And so then that's what we're going to see during our time together this morning. What we're going to see, and you see this kind of on those two main headings on your handout there, but what this passage is going to show us is that Luke, within this passage, is going to give us nine reasons, like that's a lot. 
but nine reasons. We're going to move fast. But nine reasons for why we can be certain and know for sure that Jesus really did, in fact, raise from the dead. And and these reasons that we're going to look at, like one of these reasons alone isn't going to be enough evidence to give us certainty that Jesus rose from the dead. But when you begin to compile these reasons and put one reason with the next reason and the next reason, and you put all these reasons together, then the impact of compiling and and putting all of these reasons, what I would just call all these pieces of evidence together, is to cause us to walk away with a greater certainty and greater assurance that Jesus really did, in fact, raise from the dead. And if that's true then, then at the end of our time together, I want us to ask the question, why should any of that matter for us today? So, nine reasons. Here we go. We're moving fast. First reason is this. Jesus died and was buried in a tomb by Joseph of Arimathea. This is what we see at the very beginning of this passage there in verse 50. Look there with me. Luke writes this. He says, Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. So then Luke begins this resurrection account of Jesus by introducing us to a man by the name of Joseph. And he tells us here a few important information, informational details about Joseph and who he is. And one of the first things he tells us about Joseph is that Joseph was a member of the council. So what in the world does that mean? What, what council is he referring to? Well, within the context here, in the specific word council, it's specifically a reference to the Jewish Sanhedrin, the, the ruling Jewish council of the day. And if you remember, the Jewish Sanhedrin are the ones who condemned Jesus as guilty and who handed him over to the Romans to crucify him. And so Joseph, this Joseph is a member of that specific Jewish Sanhedrin council that condemned Jesus as guilty of blasphemy and that handed him over to the Romans to be crucified. Secondly, Luke tells us that he was a good and righteous man, which means he was a a follower of the law. He adhered to the Old Testament law. Thirdly, he tells us that he was looking for the kingdom of God, meaning he was longing for and looking for and waiting for the Messiah King to appear and to usher in God's kingdom. But fourthly, he tells us that he did not consent to their decision and their action. And the specific their decision and their action that he's referring to here is the Jewish Sanhedrin council and their condemnation of Jesus as guilty and their handing him over to the Romans to crucify him. Joseph was a member of that Jewish Sanhedrin council, but he didn't agree with and support their decision and their action of condemning Jesus and having Jesus to be crucified. Joseph wasn't in agreement and in support of that. So that's who Joseph is. Then look at verse 52, and Luke tells us then what Joseph does. Verse 52, he says, This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. In that day, it would have been normal for the Romans to leave the body upon the cross to further humiliate the person who's been crucified and to allow animals and to allow the birds to basically eat them and devour their 
flesh, which we're not going to show pictures of that here this morning. But here you have Joseph coming to Pilate, who would have been the Roman governor at the time, and he doesn't want Jesus' body to hang upon the cross and be devoured by animals and birds. Instead, he comes and asks Pilate for, jo- for Jesus' body. And here's why he wanted Jesus' body. Look at verse 53 there. Then he took it down, talking about Joseph, and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. And that day would have been disgraceful for a person to be um, buried naked. And so then Joseph wraps Jesus' body from head to toe in this linen cloth and he lays them in a tomb. So then here's the question we need to ask ourselves. Why in the world is Luke including all of these details and all of this information in regards to who laid laid Jesus in the tomb and how he's wrapped and, and all the details and all the information about how all of this went down? Well, the reason that he's doing this is because Luke wants us to know for sure that Jesus really died. The reason that's important is because you can't be raised back to life until you first die. And so Luke is going to all these extremes to make the case and to show Theophilus and to remind us so that we would be certain that Jesus really did, in fact, die. Like Joseph took Jesus' dead, brutalized, bloody body down from a cross. He carried that body to a tomb. He wrapped that body in linen cloth from head to toe, and then he laid him and placed them in this tomb. And his whole purpose in including all of those details is that we would know for certain that he literally, physically died. Next piece of evidence he gives us then is this. See it on your handout. A group of women then saw Joseph place Jesus' body in the tomb. That's what we see next in verse 54. Look there with me. Luke writes this. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandments. So then when Joseph laid Jesus' dead body in this tomb, a group of women saw him do it. And that's really important, right? In other words, this isn't just one man going going rogue off on his own saying he laid Jesus' body in a tomb and you just have to believe me because that's what I did. Instead, there were other eyewitnesses that were there that followed him and saw with their very own eyes him carry his dead body and lay him in the exact tomb that he laid him in. So it wasn't just Joseph, there were eyewitnesses who witnessed it as well. Leads leads then to the third piece of evidence, which is this. See it on your hand out there. The women then went to the exact tomb that Joseph placed Jesus' body in, and that tomb was empty. This is what we see. Look at verse 1. At the very beginning of chapter 24, Luke writes this, but on the first day of the week at early dawn. So this would have been at the very beginning of Sunday when the, when the sun was beginning to rise, the very beginning of, of dawn on Sunday, the day after the Sabbath. It says that first they, talking about the women, went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, 
they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. So these women went to the exact tomb that Joseph laid Jesus' dead body in. But at the end of verse 23 there, it tells us that they, they didn't stay at the tomb there, if you remember. Instead, they went home, they, they returned home in order to prepare spices and ointments and, and give Jesus a, a proper burial. And the reason they went home and didn't stay at the tomb at the time is because the Sabbath was about to begin. And since the Sabbath was about to begin, they weren't supposed to do any work on the Sabbath. And so they went home in order to make preparations and to be able to get spices and perfumes and ointments together so that they could return after the Sabbath was over, which would have been early when the sun rose on Sunday morning, and that they could go back to the tomb then that Joseph had laid Jesus' body in and then anoint him with these perfumes and spices and ointments and give him a proper burial. The thing is, when they go back to the exact tomb where Joseph laid Jesus' dead body in, they go in and they look in and his body ain't there. But the point that Luke is trying to get at and the reason that Luke brings this up is to convince us and to show us that we would be sure and that we would be certain that the women went to the right tomb. And the reason that's important is because, and you've heard this theory even till today, is that the reason that Jesus' body wasn't in the tomb and the reason that the women didn't see Jesus' body in the tomb is because they went to the wrong tomb. And because they went to the wrong tomb, Jesus' body wasn't there. The only problem with that is that would have been like really, 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 really highly unlikely because these women saw the exact tomb that Joseph placed Jesus' body in and they went home to prepare spices and ointments to return to that same exact tomb where they could prepare his body with a prop and give Jesus an honorable, proper burial at the time. And that's exactly what they did. And when they returned to that same exact tomb, he wasn't there. His body wasn't there. Which leads to the fourth piece of evidence then, which is this. You see it on your handout. The testimony of women was not considered to be credible in that day. In other words, in the first, many of you have probably heard this, in the first century Jewish culture, the testimony of women wasn't, to, wasn't considered to be credible or, or, or viable. It wasn't to be considered credible at court. And the reason that's important then is that if Luke's agenda if Luke's purpose was to pull a fast one, if Luke's purpose was to, was to try and just fool people and, and lie to people and get people to just believe that somehow, some way that Jesus rose from the dead, then the last people that he would say were the first people to show up and discover the empty tomb were a group of people whose testimony wasn't considered to be credible. Like if all this was a lie, then the, then the first people who showed up to discover the empty tomb, Luke would have said, were the most credible people on the face of the planet. Instead, he writes, it's the, most, it's the least credible people on the face of the planet that show up and discover the empty tomb. And so do you know why he said that? Because they were. That's, that's what happened. Which then leads to the fifth 
fifth piece of evidence, which is this. Jesus promised beforehand that he would be arrested, crucified, and raised from the dead. That's what we see starting there in verse 4. Look there with me. Luke writes, while they, talking about the women, were perplexed about this. And you read that, and you're like, well, that's the understatement of the year, right? They were perplexed. They were, they were confused. They're, they're just, their mind's just, wow. Can you imagine? They're like, this, we saw Joseph lay his body there in this tomb. And, and they walk in, and they're like, look in, and he's not there. And they're like, where, where is he? Where, do, where, does, where does body go? Then look what happens next. Behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And so like these are two angels in this bright light clothing. Look at how the women respond there in verse 5 when they see these two angels. And, And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, so they were scarred, right? They were scared. They were they don't they don't they don't know what's going on. And the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. And so the, they're, they're, these men are explaining, they're interpreting these events for these women. These women look in the tomb, the body's not there, they saw Joseph lay him there, and they're confused, they're perplexed. These two angels show up, and they explain and interpret these events for these women. And basically they, they tell these women hey, here's what happened to his body. He's alive. He came back to life. That's why he's not here. Like, live people, people who are alive, they don't don't live in tombs or hang out in tombs. So you're looking in the wrong place because his body in here because he's risen. Then look at what these men say in the rest of verse 6 here. Say to these women, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Verse 8, and they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven, talking about the eleven disciples, and to all the, the rest. So these men then explain to these women, exactly what happened to Jesus' body here and why his body isn't in the tomb anymore. It's because Jesus, is, he's been telling them over and over again, like long beforehand, b- before these events ever occurred, that while they were on their way to Jerusalem, Jesus promised to these women and his disciples that three things were going to happen when he got to Jerusalem. Number one, he was going to be arrested. Number two, he's going to be crucified. And number three, that, that he was going to be resurrected. And for good measure, he just doesn't promise them that he's going to be resurrected. He tells them the exact day in which he's going to be resurrected. On the third day, he's going to be resurrected. And so then when these women come, and they see the tombs empty, like all of this should have been clicking in their head. Like, they should have known, like, okay, we've seen him be arrested. We've seen him be crucified. And so, okay, the tomb's empty, the body not there. Oh, okay, arrested, crucified. He's, he's resurrected. He's, he's been promising this. He's been telling, he's, like, been telling this, and now he's two for two. And so, like, the third thing, like, the tomb's empty. So I, I bet he's been resurrected just like he promised us. But they, like, forgot all about that. 
It like just left them somehow. That's exactly what happened. That everything that Jesus promised would happen long before it ever happened is playing itself out. Just like he said it would. Arrested, crucified, resurrected. Which again reveals this, this isn't just some grand conspiracy. This isn't just some quinky dink. Like, oh, everything Jesus promised just somehow happened exactly like he said. On the exact day he, he said. Instead, this is God's predetermined plan and further evidence that what Jesus promised here long beforehand would occur. And it occurred exactly like he said. So then leads to the next piece of evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. I have no idea what number we're on. Next one. Luke gives the specific names of those who witnessed Jesus' burial and the empty tomb. See this in verse 10. Luke writes, Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. Luke doesn't have to tell us this. Like, why, why is Luke naming names? Why, why is Luke listing out names here? What, what's so important that, that Luke would take, go to the extreme to begin to list out the names of the, of the women here? Well, it's important because the more details you have, the more specifics you have about any given event, then the easier it is to disprove the event if it was, was a lie or to disprove the event if it never occurred. Like we have the names of the specific women. Like all you got to do now is go to those women. They can say, oh, I wasn't there. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. I was, I was at Quick Trip getting gas. I, I, I don't, you know. Or you can have like Cousin Bob say, Mary, she was with me. Jo- Joanna, on, the, on, on, on that specific day at, at the dawn, on the day after the Sabbath, no, she was at my house. The more details you have, the more names you have, the more easier it is to disprove it. And Luke's just passing out details left and right. It's Joseph Arimathea, it's Mary Mac. Disprove it, disprove it, disprove it. You don't have any of that. She can show us, like, you're not just making this up. Next piece of evidence then is this. The disciples didn't expect Jesus to be raised from the dead, and they didn't believe He'd been raised from the dead when they initially heard about Him. So we see in verse 11, look at how the disciples respond when these women tell these disciples that the tomb's empty and that Jesus has raised, been raised from the dead. Verse 11, but these words seemed to them, talking about the disciples, an idle tale, and they did not believe them. The reason this is important here there's a lot of reasons, but one reason it's important here is because there are some who would say that the reason the tomb was empty when the women came back is because the disciples came in earlier and stole the body out of the tomb. And so the, when the women got there, Jesus' body was gone. The question I would have for those who would pose uh, such a theory would be this. Does verse 11 sound like, a group of, sound like a group of guys that stole Jesus' body? 
the answer to that question is, is no. Like what they sound like is, is just, well, one would be a bunch of bumbling idiots, but we won't go there. But what they sound like is just a, a bunch of people who, they don't even believe the women. They don't believe the story that they're telling them. They say it's, it's nonsense. You're speaking like crazy people. You're speaking like you're delusional. And I don't believe you. They're not conspiracy theory still in bodies. They're a bunch of people who lack faith and don't believe the story that the women are, are telling them. Next piece of evidence then is this. The disciple Peter served as another eyewitness of the empty tomb. So see in verse 12. Look what Peter did as soon as he hears this report from the women. Verse 12 says, But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. The reason that's important is we just have another eyewitness, right? It's not just Joseph Arimathea. It's not just these group of women, Mary and Joanna and, and the others, but we have another eyewitness to the fact that the tomb is empty. Then the final piece of evidence we have here is this, is that the linen cloth was left in the tombs. Notice that there in the middle of verse 12. This seems like just a small little detail that Luke includes here, but the question needs to be asked, why does Luke include this small little detail? Well, one of the reasons that he includes this small little detail is because if Jesus's body was stolen, then whoever stole it, like, wouldn't have, like, unwrapped it from head to toe and then just placed the, the linen cloth all nicely folded and everything on the side there and then taken the body out. Instead, if somebody would have gone in there to steal the body, they would have like taken the body that was still wrapped in linen cloth, and they would have taken the whole thing out. Like you're not going to take the body of a naked, brutally dead man out of the body by wrapping him up. So that doesn't make any sense. So those are nine pieces of evidence that Luke gives us for why we can be certain, why we can know for sure, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that Jesus really did, in fact, raise, was, was raised from the dead. Now, in saying all that, there's other pieces of evidence. Like you go to Matthew, Mark, John, you, you look at extra-biblical evidence and, and things of that nature, there's other pieces of evidence that we can see. But these are the nine pieces of evidence that Luke includes for us in his account of Jesus' resurrection. He's going to include a, a tenth piece of evidence, Next week, in the verses that we see, that tenth piece of evidence is like the disciples saw with their very own eyes Jesus' body that was resurrected, and they ate with him and a meal with him and all of those things. So we'll see a tenth piece of evidence, which is like the most important piece of evidence next week uh, during our time to, together. But here's what I want us to look at. Those are nine reasons we can be certain why Jesus rose from the dead. Now, here's the question. Why does it matter? Or the question, so? Like, why, why does it matter? Why, why is it important? Why is it significant that Christianity hinges upon, it stands and falls on whether or not Jesus' dead body, his heart, dead heart started beating again, his, his lungs started breathing again, 
Why, why does Christianity stand or fall upon that reality, whether or not that was true? Why, why does it matter? Well, that's what I want to see during the rest of our time together. And Luke doesn't answer this question, but the rest of the Bible does. And so we're not going to look at all the reasons for why it matters, but we're going to look at three reasons the Bible gives for why it matters that Jesus rose from the dead. And the first reason is this. You see it on your hand out there, that Jesus' resurrection proves that he's the Son of Man who has dominion and authority over all things. If you remember here, this is exactly what the, what the angels, those two men, were alluding to earlier when they were explaining to the women exactly what happened to Jesus' body. Look at verses 6 and 7 again. They tell the women, if you remember this, they say, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the, here it comes, son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful man and be crucified and on the third day rise. So put all that together, right? In order for Jesus to be the son of man, three things have to occur. He has to be arrested, he has to be crucified, and then he has to be raised again on the third day. If he doesn't do those three things, he's not qualified to be the Son of Man. If he doesn't do those three things, he is not the Son of Man. Which then begs this question, who's the Son of Man? What's so significant about the Son of Man? And why is it so important that Jesus is the Son of Man? Well, the reason it's important or, or the reason it's, it's significant is because what we read in the Old Testament, particularly in the Old Testament book of Daniel, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. You don't have to turn there, but just listen to the vision that Daniel sees and the vision that God gives to Daniel in Daniel chapter 7, starting in verse 13. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came on like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, talking about the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so then this is, this right there is what Jesus' resurrection proves. It proves that he's the son of man that Daniel prophesied about here in Daniel chapter 7. That when Jesus conquered death, right? When Jesus defeated death, when Jesus rose from the dead, then it proved that God gave to him dominion and authority and power over everything. And just think about that. That makes sense, right? If, If someone can conquer death, if someone can defeat death, if someone has power and authority over death, then that means they have power and authority over everything. Like death's kind of the last enemy. If you beat that, then you you have power and authority over over everything. And that's what Jesus' resurrection proves. It proves that he's the long-awaited son of man that has dominion and power and authority over everything everything and over everyone on the face of the earth, on the face of the planet. Like that snow that's falling, there's not one snowflake that's going to fall without the permission of Jesus. A little wind that blows, no matter, just a little puff of wind, that wind is not going to blow unless Jesus allows it to blow. 
everything, the blade of grass, the, all the leaves and all the acorns that have fallen out of my trees in the front yard. There's not a, and I got to remember this, there's not a leaf or an acorn that falls out of one of those trees that Jesus doesn't say, okay, you can fall now. Everything and everyone in the universe is under the dominion and the authority and the power of Jesus. And that includes your life and that includes my life. And the reality that and that has huge ramifications, has huge implications. Like if that's true, then you're in submission to him. You don't call the shots anymore. You don't get to determine the direction of your life anymore. You don't get to determine anything anymore. Instead, you live under the authority and the power and the dominion of Jesus, the Son of Man, the King. Like, he gets to determine all of those things. You're not just some independent, independent, autonomous life out there that can determine right and wrong. You can determine just just how your dreams of life are going to play out and and what you want your life to be and and what you're going to do the rest of this afternoon. You're living in submission and obedience to the King, to the Son of Man, who has dominion and power and authority over, over all things. Secondly, then, what it means is Jesus' resurrection means that his substitutionary death on the cross was sufficient in God's sight, and therefore our sins have been forgiven. Luke, or excuse me, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, specifically in verse 7. He says, If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Jesus hasn't been resurrected from the dead if all he ever did was die. We're all still guilty in our sins. God's wrath is still hovering over us. We're still under the condemnation of God. We still deserve God's just punishment against us because of our rebellion against the king of the universe. And that makes sense, right? Like if all Jesus just if all that Jesus ever did was just die, then his death didn't accomplish jack squat. Like he he'd be no different from any other religious leader that lived and died. It'd just be a dead body. Nothing more, nothing less. But if Jesus died and was buried, and three days later, if he really did rise back to life, then what that means then is that Jesus' death did something. It means that his death was unique. It means that his death like really did accomplish something. And the specific something that his death accomplished was that one of the things is that it revealed that God fully accepted Jesus' sacrificial substitutionary death on the cross in our place. And because God fully accepted his substitutionary sacrificial death on the cross in our place, His resurrection then is God's validation and God's testimony of his acceptance of that substitutionary death in our place. It's as if God is saying, paid in full, yes. It accomplished what it was meant to accomplish. 
And so if you want to know and be sure that you're not guilty anymore, if you want to be sure that you're not your sins anymore, if you want to be sure that you've escaped the punishment of God and the condemnation of God that you deserve for your sins, then don't just look to the cross, but also look to the empty tomb. Because both serve as witnesses and testimonies to the reality of our justification and the reality of God's forgiveness and the reality of God's acceptance of Jesus' death on the cross in our place as being sufficient to satisfy his wrath against us for our sins. Which then leads to the third and final reason Jesus' resurrection matters is this. Jesus' resurrection guarantees that death won't have the final word in our lives. Instead, one day, we too will be resurrected from the dead. Again, this is what Paul talks about, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, specifically in verses 20 through 23. Don't turn there. This, these are, I love these verses. Listen to what he says here. He says this, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Talking about those who've died. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. What Paul's saying here is that Jesus' resurrection serves as a type of firstfruits. Firstfruits, agricultural term, that when the firstfruits of a, of a harvest come in, they're, they're like the, the precursor. They're like a preview for, the, for a guarantee that, that the rest of the harvest is coming. And that's what Jesus' resurrection serves as a, as a guarantee of. That Jesus' resurrection serves as a guarantee and a promise that there's, there's going to be a whole lot of resurrections that are going to come after his. And that, that's exactly what, what Paul is, is getting at here, that Jesus' resurrection serves as a guarantee of our resurrection. That because Jesus was resurrected from the dead because Jesus' dead body came to life from the dead. That guarantees that every single person who is trusting in Jesus and his sacrificial death on the cross as their only hope for salvation and to rescue them from God's punishment that they deserve for for our sins. If you are trusting that, if you are in Christ in that way, then what that means then is that because Jesus was resurrected from the dead, then when Jesus returns, all of those who are in Christ, their dead bodies are going to be raised from the dead and raised back to life as as well. And just like think about that, right? I know like so many of us, yeah, I I know that. No, like think about that. Like that's, 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 that should perplex you. Going back to the one thing. That should utterly perplex you. But it's true. Like all of that is true. That since Jesus defeated death, all those who are in Christ will defeat death too. And so then think about that, the implications, the ramifications for that when it comes to your life and my life. Like here's a question to think about. How would your life be different if you really believe that? Like if you really believe that you were going to live forever in that way to kind of like you're invincible, there's nothing 
that will ever utterly and completely and fully and finally kill you. If you believe that you are invincible, not because you're so strong, but because of Jesus you're, you're that invincible, kill me. I'm going to come back to life. Okay, I die. I'm going to come back to life. If you really believe that, if I really believe that, I, 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 oh man, how would we live? No fear of death anymore? Knowing we're going to live forever? Knowing we'll defeat death? Knowing death won't have the final word? How would that practically affect how you go about living your daily life? Just, just think about that. How, how would it change how, you're, how you respond, how you view just suffering, heartache, agony, distress, pain? How would it affect how you respond to stress and worry and anxiety, insecurity, fear? How, how would it change in terms of just how you spend your time and what you give your time to, what you give your focus to, what you give your attention to? How would it change when it comes to your attitude toward things that bother you, things that frustrate you, things that just kind of gnaw at you? How, how would it change just your relationships with people, how you relate to people, how you get along with people, how you view people, how you treat people? How would it change in terms of how you do ministry and your boldness in evangelism and global missions? in risking your life so that others will come to faith and know the gospel. What if they kill you? You'll be raised back to life. How would your life be different if you knew that beyond a shadow of a doubt that you weren't ever going to ultimately and fully and finally completely die, but instead you were going to live forever? And not only that you were going to live forever, but you were going to live forever in a perfectly restored earth with the resurrected Jesus. In which there's no more, no more abuse, no more anxiety, no more cancer, no more depression, no more disagreements, no more fear, no more funerals, no more sad goodbyes, no more loneliness, no more miscarriages, no more orphans, no more sin, no more, all of it's just completely eradicated. Instead, one day in Christ, we will be raised to live in this perfectly restored earth with resurrected Jesus, the Son of Man, forever. And so then does it matter that we're certain about these things? Or is it okay that we're just 75% Okay, how oh, it matters. It, it matters that we're convinced and for sure that the tomb is empty. It affects every single thing about us. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for this word. Thank you for Luke and how by the enabling power of your spirit, you superintended this process by which he would take great pain to research, to explore, to investigate eyewitnesses, other accounts, to write this so that not only Theophilus would be certain, but that we would be certain as well. And that as we're certain, that the realities of the resurrection 
has, would have huge ramifications on our lives, on our obedience to the Son of Man, on our confidence and assurance of forgiveness, and our hope in the world to come and the resurrection to come. Because the reality of those three truths then have a ripple effect on every single event, on every single thought, on every single situation that we face in the rest of our lives today and during the rest of our time here on earth. And so I pray that we would be certain and live lives in light of the fact that the King, the Son of Man, Jesus, has in fact risen. We praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.